2: Hello and thank you for listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. We're coming to you from WBEZ in Chicago. Coming up... I write
3: about brave people. I'm not one of them.
2: (laughs) We talked to author Andy Weir about his breakout novel, The Martian. And Greta got a pretty great birthday present. A conversation with Neil deGrasse Tyson. I mean, aside from like existence, which also happened to happen on my birthday, I'm pretty sure it was the best present ever.
4: (laughs) And space nerds rejoice because we have a great lady nerd of history for you who is an expert on the story. We'll get to know Maria Mitchell. That and your nerd confessions this week on Nerdette. Because everybody's a little nerdy about something.
1: Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! Nerds! Nerd!
2: You're listening to Nerdette. Hello, I am Greta Johnson here with Trisha Bobita. We want to remind you we are still recapping Game of Thrones every week. With the ever so tiresome Peter Segal. Tiresome, I find him (laughs) delightful. He is delightful. Make sure you never miss an episode of that and Nerd not Proper by subscribing to
4: us. Today our conversation is with Andy Weir. He's the author of the novel The Martian.
2: This book is science fiction, and it follows an American astronaut named Mark Watney. And essentially what happens is he gets stranded on Mars. The rest of his team leaves. They think that he's dead, so they leave him behind and head back to Earth. And he's left with all the supplies of a six-man mission to Mars, but no ability to talk to anybody, nothing. It's just him and his daily logs. It's a lot of math. It's oddly mundane, but it's also hilarious and just really good. I loved it.
4: Andy Weir says he didn't really expect anyone but nerds to be reading his book.
3: I thought I was writing it for hardcore science nerds. I tried to make the science as accurate as possible. And I wanted to make sure that I explained everything so that readers would understand it. But at the same time, I didn't want to read like a Wikipedia article. That was a pretty tough balance. And one thing that sucked was there's a lot of places where I did a bunch of math and I did a bunch of clever stuff and I was so proud of myself and I wanted to tell the reader about it, but it wouldn't have fit. It didn't matter to the story or it wasn't relevant enough to explain all the steps. I could just give them the, the answer. And like sometimes I would just kind of like grumble internally a bit. I'm like, it took me a long time to write this. It should take you a long time to read it.
4: But, uh, <laughs> but like I said, I wrote it for nerds and geeks and dweebs like me. I think... As someone who has read many a book about Mars in my day, this one is unique. And I'm going to quote, who was it that said, Chris Hadfield said that very, very rarely do you find something with as much humanity and as much scientific accuracy as this book. And blending both is not something that every author would prioritize. Like you said, it's easy to fall into the trap of leaning on one versus the other and just letting the other fall by the wayside, but you're doing both.
3: Pretty much every writer does the same thing you try to write a book that you yourself would like to read right and i'm a picky little sh- when i'm watching or reading science fiction i will accept big violations of physics but i can't handle little ones <laughs> so it's like if you just say in your story oh yes we have the um dark matter transwarp superdrive that allows us to travel many times the speed of light i just accept it i'm like okay not a problem. But if you're walking around on Mars without a spacesuit, I'm going to get mad. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> right? So it's like big violations of physics, no problem. Little ones, ugh. I kind of call it the uh, uncanny valley of science, right? If you get too mm. close to real science and then break the rules, it bugs me. So I this whole story of course is like really, you know, near future and I couldn't have like hand-wavy science to solve everything. So I just had to be accurate all the time, at least enough to satisfy someone as picky as me.
2: Have <laughs> you heard from other picky shits who have found pieces <laughs> of the book that they take issue with?
3: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um but generally the tone is always like wow, the scientific accuracy on this was great. You know, I was like, very, very accurate. I haven't seen a novel with this much accuracy, but you should know. (laughs) (laughs) So it's still, they're still complimentary, you know, and, and they're still like really positive. And basically... Picky shits like me, um, (laughs) we don't often get to see things that put the effort into doing the math and being accurate. So we're just really happy when we see it at all.
2: (laughs) I think part of what makes that combination so effective in your case is the sense of humor of our main narrator, Mark Watney. I mean, he's hilarious.
3: Thanks. Yeah, that's another thing. If if you're going to have a lot of basically exposition like I had to do, got to find a way to make it interesting. I mean, otherwise it would have been mind-bogglingly dull. Also, I'm not interested in deep psychological stuff like uh, the people who don't like the book point out rightfully and fairly so that there's really no character development and there's very (laughs) little character depth. He doesn't undergo any change. He's got the exact same personality, beliefs and ideals at the end of the book as he does at the beginning. So people give me crap for that.
2: I feel like Um, I found that really refreshing.
3: It could have easily become just this really dark a book about um,
4: a sad man in space. Yeah, a tale
3: of a guy who's like on the verge of going insane. I just didn't want to tell that story. I wanted it to be like an extended episode of MacGyver.
4: Yeah, and I like someone's called it Holmesian, and I liked that description oh. too, that Sherlock Holmes, we don't necessarily need to know how he's feeling at every moment because yeah. his brain is doing so many other things that are so much more interesting than his feelings.
3: <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, Holmes is an interesting character study. I guess it's like plot driven stories as opposed to character driven stories.
2: Yeah, that was another really interesting element to me because it was super plot driven. It was a very suspenseful book, but you also balanced that with monotony in this really interesting way, (laughs) right? Because it's like you can only have so much action every day and then it doesn't make any sense either. You know, like he has to be 24. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You know, there are moments where he's binging on disco and he's hating himself for it. And that, too, I just think is such an interesting way to tell the story. Oh,
4: thanks. So you grew up reading a lot of science fiction, it sounds like. What were some of your main influences as you were approaching putting together this book? I grew up reading about one generation
3: off from my own in sci-fi because my dad had this huge um, bookshelf full of sci-fi paperbacks that he'd collected throughout his life so i really read the stuff from like um baby boomer era so like stuff from the 1950s and 1960s my kind of holy trinity or um isaac asimov robert heinlein and arthur c Clarke. those are the uh sci-fi authors i really kind of worshipped and grew up reading so they were definitely influences in this style of storytelling also um I guess for the Martian specifically, I was trying to recapture the, the really cool parts of like Apollo 13, you know, that feeling of everybody working together to try to save people who are in trouble, plus all the science and technological solutions. And OK, so it no longer matters what things were designed to do. I want to know what they can do. You yeah. Know?
2: So I do want to go back to a little bit of your sort of nerd origin story. There's like a and a in the back of the version of the Martian that I have. Uh-huh. And there's this really beautiful thing where they ask you Star Wars or Star Trek.
3: And I say Doctor Who. Because
2: that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. <laughs> nice work, Mr. Ah, Lear. you
4: guys are Hoovians. <laughs> oh, I am a serious Hoovian. yes, indeed.
2: Yeah, I feel right. like I'm a, I'm I'm more of a dabbler, but Trisha's got it covered for me. <laughs> That's sort of how I like to look at it.
4: Well,
3: I have to ask the standard question. Who's your favorite doctor? David Tennant,
4: because he ah, was my first.
3: I know. He's my second favorite. Okay. I mean... My favorite's Peter Davison. The, he was the doctor when I started watching the show when I was like twelve, you know. So he's the one I imprinted on.
4: Yeah, I think that's how it works it's your for me first too. Doctor, I think it's interesting that you love the show so much, considering how picky you are about the science, though. Because Doctor <laughs> Who certainly in an what almost what are you talking about? That's
3: in an almost... <laughs> solid, heavily researched science there. No, um, like I said, it's the scientific uncanny valley. It's like if you if you're just gonna go way off and say like okay, I have a box that, you know, can travel through time and space, then I accept it, you know? (laughs) Mostly I just want stories to be internally consistent with their own physics, you know? A lot of quote-unquote sci-fi is really just um, drama in a space setting. Like, Star Wars is basically a medieval
4: fantasy. Yeah, just the swords happen to be lasers. (laughs) Right. That is perfect
2: and hilarious. So what's the process been like for the movie? Ah. When you were writing the book, could you see it as a movie? I felt like I could, but I already knew that it was going to be. So maybe that's not fair.
3: Well, I think every writer imagines their book as a movie, but I didn't take that seriously as a as a real thing that could happen. Mm-hmm. Right. It didn't occur to me. But you yeah, like, I like, oh, Matt write...
2: Damon. Matt Damon is going to play this character, obviously.
3: Right. Yeah. Right. Clearly. <laughs> I imagined it visually like I imagined it cinematically in my mind, but that's just kind of how I imagine things. So I guess in a way I'm always kind of writing movies as books. (laughs) But no, I I had no idea that it would end up being a movie. And it's weird. The process is like there's no point at which you pop the champagne – you never really know that it's happening until it's already well underway. Movie studios buy options like mints. I mean, <laughs> they'll get options on hundreds of books for every movie they make out of a book. I mean, it's so when, when they got the option, I was like, wow, that's really cool. And my agent was like, well, that is cool, and it's money, and it's nice, but don't get too worked up about don't it. It's still breath. like yeah. yeah. single-digit percent odds that this will be made, so don't get your hopes up. Just concentrate on the book. Anyway, and then bit by bit, they just kept moving forward. They're like, okay, we got Drew Goddard wants to do the adaptation screenplay. I'm like, great. And he wrote it. And then they're like, okay, now Matt Damon wants to be in it. And oh, well, okay, now now Ridley Scott wants to direct it. And then <laughs> I'm like, well, this seems like a positive direction. Yeah, you, seriously,
2: you seriously haven't popped any champagne at any of these moments? Well, all of them were just like eased into it right it's like oh
3: drew goddard is interested in writing the screenplay oh all that's neat okay and then well drew goddard is working on the screenplay now okay well he's finished a first draft of the screenplay and they did and they didn't send it to me and then they're like oh well now he's shopping it around to actors we're going to try to get you know this actor or that actor it's like well they said no Okay. well, now we're going to and then it's just like time goes by. And then they're like, oh, hey, Matt Damon says he might be interested.
2: Yeah, I don't know, man. I think it's time to celebrate. (laughs) Yeah. Like, not that you need my permission, but I really think it's time.
3: (laughs) Yeah. At this point, now that they've actually finished filming and it's in post-production, I think it's safe to say this is happening.
2: Now that someone has seen (laughs) a trailer somewhere.
3: For me, the real moment of celebration was when they actually exercised the rights, because up until then, I was like, well, you know, the point at which they have to actually cut the check is the point at which they're not screwing around anymore, right? Companies don't like parting with large piles of money. So <laughs> that means once they cut the check, it means, all right, that's kind of proof to me that they that they mean it, that they're not screwing around, you know. And so at that point, I was pretty happy. Yeah, <laughs>
2: absolutely. So I read an article that you don't like to fly. And I
3: really don't.
2: It got me thinking, Trisha and I sort of have this ongoing debate where she's the one who would love to go to outer space. And I'm like, I could just stay here. I'm fine. I really don't need to do that. And I was curious where you fall on this. I would not go. You would not go. <laughs> I think absolutely that's not. fascinating, no given the nature no. of this book.
3: Yeah, well, I write about brave people. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I'm not um, saying that
4: I would get to go, by the way. I'm clearly not astronaut material, but I would like to go.
3: <laughs> well, you're, you're not alone. A lot of people would, but I'm i am not one of those people. I, yes. I just...
4: Glad to have another person in the home body camp. I think it's important to admit that, you know? <laughs> I think it's fantastic when a movie, even one that doesn't have very sound physics, comes out that's about space travel, because I think that the things that are happening in the real world right now can use more attention. And every time somebody writes about... The Martian, they're also writing about SpaceX a little bit. There's a paragraph there about what's actually happening at NASA or what's actually going to happen uh, mm-hmm. soon. And because The Martian is so scientifically based, they're even I think there's even a higher bar for the coverage of it that's going to be about the science behind Mars exploration and all these things that's going to be exciting. And it reminds me of when recently we got to go talk to some astronomers from Adler Planetarium here in Chicago, and someone asked them this sort of question, does it bother you when you go see something like gravity or interstellar, that it's not perfectly accurate to the way space works? And they said, absolutely not, because then we get to talk about how space works. <laughs> yeah.
3: No, and I feel the same way. I got all those questions, too, especially about gravity. It was coming out in theaters right around the time the book was uh, had just released, So that's when people were, oh, hey, you, you, you talk about space and (laughs) I'd say like, yeah, there's a bunch of like errors and approximations and stuff like that in gravity. But so what? It's cool. It's fun. It's a stunning visual masterpiece and it's exciting and Yes. I mean, and it's a hell of a lot more, you know, scientifically accurate than most. (laughs) I'm (laughs) droolingly, wildly looking forward to the next Star Wars movie, but Mm. I don't expect it to be heavy on science. (laughs) Right?
2: Thanks to Andy Weir for joining us. He is one of those magically productive people, Tricia, who is not on Twitter.
4: I'm still not convinced we have enough data to call that a true correlation I that feel involves causation. I like
2: really successful people are not actually on Twitter. That's not true
4: when you consider our next guest.
2: Ooh, good foreshadowing, Tricia. Because, still to come, we're talking with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Who wins at Twitter.
4: Who totally wins
2: at Twitter. A chat with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and we remember great lady nerd of history, Maria Mitchell. That's all still to
0: come on Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast,
1: More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events.
4: We especially need imagination in science. It is not all mathematics nor all logic, but it is somewhat beauty and poetry. That's astronomer Maria Mitchell, who spent a lifetime. Studying the skies and teaching others, especially women, to do the same. This week's Great Lady Nerd of History is someone who's been looking at the stars and getting inspired to do math since way before it was made cool by Neil deGrasse Tyson and Andy Weir. Maria Mitchell was one of the first astronomers in the U.S. to discover a comet. It even earned her a gold medal from the King of Denmark, who fancied himself an amateur astronomer as well. Maria was helped on her scientific journey by her father, a Quaker who believed that boys and girls should both receive education. He worked in a bank as a cashier, but convinced them to let him put a telescope on the roof of the bank in Nantucket. She was only 12 years old when she helped her father calculate the position of their home exactly by observing a solar eclipse. It's said that by the age of 14, she was doing navigational calculations for whaling journeys. By her late 20s, she had enough experience peering into a telescope to learn to trust her eye. And that's what she did on October 1st of 1847, when she discovered a comet.
3: Tenth month, first day, 1847. This evening, at half past ten, Mariah discovered a telescopic comet five degrees above Polaris. Persuaded that no nebula could occupy that position unnoticed, it scarcely needed the evidence of motion to give it the character of a comet.
4: Her discovery was recognized, like we said, by the king of Denmark and also named Miss Mitchell's Comet. Maria Mitchell was a brilliant mathematician and astronomer, but it wasn't just about numbers for her when she looked at the sky. The greatest benefit derived
0: from the study of science is that it lifts you out of and above the littleness of daily trials. We learn to live in the universe as a part of it. We cannot separate ourselves from it. Our every act connects us with it. Our every act affects the whole. Standing under the canopy of the stars and remembering their presence, you could scarcely do a petty deed or think a wicked thought.
4: That's a quote from the short documentary called Maria Mitchell, Explorer of the Stars. You'll find a link to it at our website, nerdapodcast.com. listening to internet i'm trisha Bobita here with greta johnson trisha as
2: you know something pretty amazing happened to me a couple weeks ago you turned 30 and are
4: an old person
2: yes and well i'm <laughs> super excited about actually well i mean being that much closer to being able to actually call myself a grandmother and you know i traveled around the sun 30 times so that's kind of cool but this other thing also happened oh yeah that thing i got to sit in a room and talk to neil degrasse tyson Neil
4: deGrasse Tyson! I know. It's crazy. It's crazy. It still blows my mind to think about it. The host of Cosmos, our favorite show about the universe, and also my favorite late-night talk show guest, I think, bar none. He's great on The Daily Show and on Letterman. He does great stuff on Twitter, like during the Olympics, he was converting all of the things that people were doing, (laughs) like the long jump and the shot put, into how far they would have gone on Mars, which is why I thought he would have really... Yeah, that is the calculation in his head (laughs) for your age on Mars. But I will give him a pass on that one. But man, we love Neil deGrasse Tyson. Neil deGrasse Tyson is one of those people who's doing really good work of making science more accessible. He heads the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. And his podcast, Star Talk is now also a TV show on the National Geographic channel. He is pretty much legitimately
2: the coolest nerd that you've ever
4: heard of, I think,
2: even if you haven't heard of him.
4: And you asked him how he describes what he does with science education, this using Twitter and being really funny and fun to talk about space and science. And what was the analogy you tried to use? (laughs) So it might have been a flawed analogy, to, to be honest. But I asked him
2: essentially if he thought that pop culture was like the hot dog that you wrap the little science education pill around. Like how you get a dog to eat their yeah, medicine. Yeah, man, it's about how you get a Am dog I to eat the medicine. In this scenario? See, that's the thing that I have since like I was talking to someone else about this, and they're like, "Why are you putting your pills in hot dogs?" And it's definitely <laughs> for dogs. But in any case, he—I mean—I think he understood the analogy I was trying to make, but he still thought I was—he also had
4: correct.
1: <laughs> no, that implies that the hot dog is separate and distinct from the pill. What I'm doing is embedding the content. No, that's not even the right word. I am weaving the content seamlessly through the pop culture so that you are receiving this information uh, not as a bait-and-swap but as as a connection between, in my case, science and pop culture, a connection that now your appreciation of pop culture has been enriched.
2: So nobody's being tricked. This is all very complicit.
1: <laughs> it, is, it is completely out in the open. <laughs> so if I succeed, I'm not saying I succeed at every, every occasion, but when I succeed, you will never look at pop culture in that particular topic or in that particular aspect of it in the same way. It would be impossible for you to think about it without having the, this slightly more enriched understanding of it and outlook so no it's it's not a hot dog wrapped in but plus I don't think vegetarians would agree with that <laughs> referencing anyway that's fair that's fair <laughs> no, I, I'm a big fan of hot dogs but right mm-hmm.
2: hot dogs are good mm-hmm. so one thing I wanted to ask you about that I think about a lot Is that idea, I feel like, especially when it comes to like the the inquiring scientific mind, there are a couple of things that in general society tends to dislike. And those two things are to admit when you don't know something and to admit when something doesn't work, isn't working. And it seems, I mean, even just now you mentioned how your life experience, you know, you don't do things that don't work.
1: Oh, yeah. It's not that I don't do things that don't work. I do plenty of things that don't work. I just don't do them again. <laughs> 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 Try to edit your life in such a way that the good things get repeated and the unsuccessful things don't. So we need to reassess our relationship with failure. If you go to almost every successful person there ever was and just talk to them about their lives. They have failed multiple times. It may be that success is not that you're good at something, but that you are not brought down by having failed at something. It may be that that's as important a force driving the person as any success they might have had throughout. Also, if something fails on the frontier of discovery, do you run around looking who to blame and punish, or do you say, well, this is kind of what you expect on the frontier of discovery? My disappointments come about when we just have this Amtrak disaster right in my the northeast corridor where I live, and I thought we had trains figured out. We've been riding trains since the 1800s. So that's not the kind of disaster that you want to have in modern times. Not that you want any kind of disaster, but that's one, yeah, somebody messed up is a freaking train, for goodness sake, All right? Now, if someone said, I want to fly the first mission to Mars, and people die on that, that would be tragic. But you would understand that they were doing what no one has done before. And if you're going to put your life at risk, that's the kind of thing you put your life at risk doing. So, so there's failure, which goes on in the la- every scientific lab and the life of every scientist. But there's also just being candid about your ignorance. I think the word ignorance has gotten a bad name. Oh, you ignorant person. Ignorance just means the stuff you don't know. And in, in an academic setting that is the place where ignorance is, is resolved you are taught how to learn what to learn and so i'm i'm so happy to say when i don't know something because then i say let me go f- try to find out oh by the way if you're ignorant and then it here's the worst combination to be ignorant and have no curiosity well you know just just move back into the cave Because that's where you're actually living. So uh, uh, curiosity and ignorance go together in a beautiful way.
4: Curiosity and ignorance. I love that. It reminds me of what we talk about so much on this show, that being a nerd doesn't mean you know everything about something. Mm -hmm. It means you're enthusiastic about it and that you want to learn more and that you're curious about it and passionate about it. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is certainly... Perhaps, sorry, Peter Sagal, he may be (laughs) king of the nerds with such a thoughtful approach to how and why we learn. I love that.
2: So Neil also brought up traveling to Mars, which seemed awfully fitting for this episode, having spoken with Andy Weir. And I thought, Tricia, that he also should weigh in on this whole idea of whether or not he would go to space, given the fact that you and I are sort of at opposite ends of the spectrum.
1: If you're going to send me into space, send me somewhere. NASA has convinced us all, we have convinced ourselves, that low Earth orbit, which is where the space shuttle has gone and the space station, that that's space. Well, how far up is that? It's a couple of hundred miles. Well, let's picture that. You take a schoolroom globe and ask, where would the space station be relative to the schoolroom globe? And I've done the math on this. So you you can still do it, but I've done the math. You can double check it, but um, (laughs) of all the things to double check of what I say, really, (laughs) save yourself on this one. Um, It orbits about three-eighths of an inch above the surface of the schoolroom globe, yet somehow we all call that space. Well, I'm an astrophysicist. To me, space is not three-eighths of an inch above a planetary surface. Space means you're going somewhere to a destination, to the moon, to Mars. Um, And by the way, a schoolroom globe, ask how far away is the moon? to the schoolroom globe most people don't know because they only see pictures in textbooks and there's earth there and the moon right on the same page a schoolroom globe earth is uh, the moon is 30 feet away and you're reminded why it took astronauts three days to get there you know how long it takes to get to orbit eight minutes very different distances and on that scale how far away is Mars it's a mile away so you're going to send me into space I'll go to space but I don't want to boldly go where hundreds have gone before.
4: Wow. <laughs> so, right? If we have a schoolroom globe. Yep. And we want to go to Mars, mm-hmm. it's a mile away. Yeah. That's so that does, far. That does make the space station seem still super awesome, but like less awesome.
2: <laughs> so you're you're with Neil now. Send me somewhere.
4: Well, maybe send me to more the space station first for like a minute. See so how you I feel? can see how I like it. <laughs> and then yes, sign me up. I'll go to Mars. Especially if I get to go with Neil. <laughs> <laughs> I might. I would probably go to Mars with Neil. God,
2: that's such a commitment.
4: I, I'm not sure we've ever had a guest I've been more excited to hear what their homework is. Greta, did you get homework from Neil? I did get homework, and it is really intense. Are you ready for this? I'm
2: ready.
1: I want to disrupt people's slumber with the following thought, that we define ourselves as intelligent. Well, because we came up with the definition. (laughs) Would an alien judge us to be intelligent? When we consider chimpanzees nearly identical to us in DNA, yet we declare that there's this great gulf in intellect that separates us. Meanwhile, our DNA is practically identical. So are we jumping into that tiny difference in DNA and calling it a gulf, and saying, we are brilliant, smart people, we have poetry, we have art, we have the Hubble telescope, and a chimp just has a stick to extract termites from a mound? Well maybe the difference between extracting termites from a mound and the Hubble telescope is as small as the difference in DNA suggests. And if that's the case, then some other life form out there, an alien, with the same intelligence gap between us that we have between chimps, we would not measure on their scale of intelligence. They would wonder how we managed to keep ourselves alive. They would see us as being so stupid as to not even be worthy of their attention so, maybe we have been visited by aliens and they've concluded there's no sign of intelligent life on Earth. Consider how dumb we might actually be given how smart some other species may have evolved to become.
2: And then we're just going to let the silence go for a long time after that. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
4: Thank you very much for talking
2: with me. It was a dark light.
1: Sure, sure. But happy to be on your debt. Very cool. <laughs>
4: Well, I like that he put us in our place a little bit there. Right? He does have a uncanny ability to make you see the bigger picture, which doesn't make anything that we're trying to do, go to Mars or any of these other things, any less important, but it does help put them in perspective that to someone else, they could just be a chimpanzee with a stick. <laughs> well, and I just love the trajectory of the conversation, too,
2: where we get to talk about these really important, beautiful aspects of failure and admitting when you don't know something, and then... Realizing that really we know nothing at all anyway. You know nothing,
4: <laughs> Greta Johnson. <laughs> Thanks, Trisha. Thanks for that. Now it's time to hear from you. Time for Nerd Confessions. Nerd Confessions! And this is Spacey in a different way than the rest of this episode has <laughs> been Spacey.
0: Um, this is um, BJ Lederman, and uh, I remember in high school... I used to love to go into Radio Shack and buy those 50-in-1 electronics sets, you know, with the little springs and wires and capacitors and transistors, and and I made a cat whisker radio. Yeah. Does anybody remember what that is? (laughs) (sighs) And I used to be into the weather. I used to be a kid weatherman, you know, putting the little wind thingy on the top of my roof getting yelled at by my dad and stuff i was a nerd but now i'm a piano player and a composer so everything worked out (laughs) really well
4: (laughs) (laughs) thanks bj that was a good one that was npr composer bj lederman who you've heard his music if you've listened to basically any NPR show, more or less. Yeah, pretty much. Morning Edition, All Things
2: Considered, Marketplace, Weekend Edition. Yeah, all the way, Wait, hits. wait, don't wait, tell wait, me. Don't tell me. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Call us at 312-600-5638 to tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome. Yes, call us and leave your nerd confession, 312-600-5638. Or suggest a great lady nerd of history for us to profile, or just say hi. We love your voicemails.
2: Thanks to Andy Weir and Neil deGrasse Tyson for joining us this week. Also, our sincerest thanks to the folks over at Sierra, the astrophysics department at Northwestern University.
4: Find more from Nerdat at nerdatpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for our email newsletter.
2: Talk with us on Twitter at Nerdat Podcast and like us on Facebook.
4: Follow us on Instagram at Nerdat Podcast for teeny tiny book reviews from Greta. You can put them in your pocket. This show is produced by us, Tricia Bobita and Greta Johnson. With help from Joe Disseau and Colleen Pellisier. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
2: Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, or wherever else you might be listening to us on. We'd love it if you took the plunge and subscribed, and while you're there, maybe throw some stars and write a review. Like the excellent Joursoft did on iTunes. I'm glad we can help spice up Game of Thrones for you.
4: We appreciate all the stars, retweets, and shares. Thank you for helping spread the good word about Nerdette. And there's one other way you can help us out. If you're a nerd with a business, or you work for one and you want to get your message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite the show. Email nerdettpodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities.
2: Our theme music is New Old Toys by Paddington Bear.
4: Do your homework. Do your homework.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO Original Limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Macs and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.